Hello, and welcome to another engaging episode of Cyber Speaks Live, the InfoSec podcast recorded in front of a live online audience, giving you, the community, a voice that can be heard around the world. And now it's time for your host, Duncan Macklin. Hello, everyone. My name is Duncan Macklin. I am InfoSec War on Twitter, and this is the reboot of Cyber Speaks Live. Joining me today for the very first time is my co-host, Alif Dennis. Alif, how are you? Hi, I am great. And yourself, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I can't complain other than, you know, some issues thanks to Microsoft's Patch Tuesday kind of screwing up my podcasting <laughs> box. So I am running a little bit behind today, but I can't wait to get into what we have planned for today. So who did you recommend as our first guest with the reboot format of Cyber Speaks Live with you being my you know, full-time co-host? Well, uh, this is my first opportunity to co-host and I thought it would be absolutely fantastic if we could have um, somebody who I greatly admire and uh, really love to follow on Twitter. So I reached out to Leslie Carhart hacks for pancakes and thankfully she was willing and able to join us today so she's going to be um, sharing a little bit about her and her work with us today and i'm super excited to get into it you know and the stars just aligned so nicely on this because leslie has been a target of mine for some time now you know <laughs> that sounds so crazy <laughs> <laughs> Now that I think about that. Yeah, <laughs> now she, that you said that out loud, it sounded a little. <laughs> she's not a headshot. She's just target, you know, a, a target for a guesting. Guest on, yes, on of course. Yes. Yeah. I'm not trying to assassinate any of our guest folks. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, I, I thought the context alone might have put it in into that perspective. But, you know, I've. You could probably tell just by looking at some of our previous guests that I'm a big fan of supporting those that have supported the Tribe of Hackers movement, right? In the book series that Marcus J. Carey and Jen Jen started. Um, you know, so I've been selectively choosing, you know, some of the ones in the book that I know and have a personal relationship with, but also have been reaching out to some of the outliers that um that i'd really like to get to know better that i think have a compelling story and a really interesting take on infosec and leslie has definitely been on my radar for the past few months it's just been trying to get through the right sequence because you know we run with themes and we have an editorial calendar and we know what kind of things we're wanting to talk around different times of the year and all this stuff and when you have something as specialized as what Leslie concentrates in, that needs due attention and it needs its own little, you know, safe haven and its own little area to shine rather than just being sucked in and, and kind of evaporated, you know, into the nothingness of everything else that we've got going on in cyber. And it kind of speaks to, and I know we're kind of in this monologue right now, but it kind of speaks to the vast options that exist when people say, I want to get into InfoSec, but I don't know what I want to do. You know, mm -hmm. how do I, how do I decide what area of InfoSec to go into? Do you find yourself getting asked that a lot by your 
mentees and, and others that come up to you and talk at conferences and stuff, Elite? Absolutely. I, I get asked that a lot. And for a very long time, I felt like I was still trying to answer that question for myself. I felt like I was standing and this is going to age me. I felt like I was standing in a blockbuster and I was looking at all these video <laughs> cassette cases and I'm reading the back of the movie and trying to figure out what it's about based on like, you know, three sentences about a plot that doesn't want to give away anything about the movie. And I'm like, I don't know. A, if I'm going to like this, B, if I have the skills to do it, like, I don't know what direction to go in. And um, for a long time, I feel like I kind of floundered and I tried to try a little bit of everything. And social engineering was a great way to get exposure and, and kind of leap in to this mix. But ultimately, uh, I think people think that I'm some kind of super elite red teamy social engineer <laughs> with no technical skills. And I actually work for a company that is really focused on supporting uh, critical infrastructure and things like hospitals and water systems and things like that. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to include Leslie in one of our conversations and have her on as a guest because it's opened up this huge universe of things that I'd never even considered being you know, like information security and something that I could actually realistically do um, and contribute to. And I think that there's, this, especially with the recent situation in Florida with the water system, there's all of this stuff that's now coming into the spotlight, so to speak. And Leslie's been doing it for years and understood how important this stuff was for years and talking to us about it on Twitter for years. And everybody's just like, oh, yeah, that is a thing now. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into it and introduce our guests then. So without further ado, Leslie Carhart, Hacks for Pancakes on Twitter. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I hope you're both doing well. Yeah, can't complain. <laughs> Hanging no. in there at least. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's chilly here on the West Coast, but I actually appreciate the cold. So doing fantastically. So... Leslie, I don't like to uh, put words into people's mouths or, or to try to read do justice. Their, <laughs> yeah, do justice to their bios and stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll put that stuff out on, on social just so folks kind of get excited about who our guest is going to be. But do you mind just telling the folks uh, a bit about yourself, your background, um, you know, where you're employed, what you do and those kinds of things? Yeah, so um, my my specialty is digital forensics and incident response. So I've been doing that for over a decade now. Been in IT for a long time, well over twenty years now. Um, served in the Air Force. Uh, did did all kinds of goofy technical stuff there. Um, I've, I've worn a lot of hats in my life. Um, I'm also uh, a martial artist and a competitive marksman. Um, and currently I work for a company called Dragos and we specialize in industrial control system cybersecurity. So one of the few people in the world who gets called out when there's something like a power plant that's been hacked or potentially hacked. So that's, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Very interesting. And uh, just yesterday, I got the second opportunity to listen to Tom Poffick. I don't know if you're familiar with him with the, oh, okay. He's actually one of the very first people that I ever interviewed before Cyber Speaks Live. I interviewed him for another pet project that I was doing. And of course, 
Thomas is the president of the society, no, the Foundation for Resilient Societies, which deals a lot with the power grids and, and um, he was talking about basically everything that went on here in Texas uh, last month with the February 14th mm. snowpocalypse or, you know, Valentine's Day dump, whatever you want to call it, but basically where we shit the bed when it comes to power. And uh, yeah, it, it was a very ugly scenario, but it's something that I had looked back. My interview with him was three years ago to the day almost, and uh, just kind of revealing that a lot of times the things that we're told in cybersecurity, the things that we are told when it comes to business continuity planning, disaster recovery, all these things, you know, all too often it falls onto a deaf ear. So I don't envy you because you're dealing with a very particularly challenging facet of cybersecurity. And that's obviously incident response, but also incident response in these very challenging environments of industrial control systems. So um, feel free, like uh, Aletha is saying there, in chat, if you have questions for Leslie that pertain to incident response, digital forensics, how this all pertains to the industrial control systems that are handling our manufacturing, our oil and gas, our energy, you know, medical systems, all this stuff I'm running out of areas where ICS fits in is like where it does it it but for the listeners that may not have as firm of a grasp um, just in a nutshell how would you describe ICS so industrial control systems are are pieces of machinery equipment that automate industrial processes and processes can be all kinds of different things they're all around us in society everything from you know simple things you see like escalators working and doors opening to complex things like manufacturing processes and the power generation oil and gas um, transportation like things like trains operating industrial systems are, are automation tools to make things happen in a process. And they can be mechanical, so they can be gears and pulleys, they can be analog, and they can also be digital and very complex. Okay. I think that is a real concise and yet encapsulated description of it. Uh, definitely makes sense to me. So one of the things that we'd like to do with our guests as we get into the show and the theme is just kind of breaking the ice and, and helping our audience get to know you a little bit more intimately you know obviously when you're as world renowned as you are and let's just face it you are you're in at least two of the books that i'm aware of right the tribe of packers original edition the security leaders did you participate in the red team as well i can't remember uh, so I, i've certainly done red teaming in my life yes oh i mean the red team edition of the tribe of packers oh no i was i was in the management book and i was in the um, original tribe of hackers right those are the two that i just 
mentioned yes. and have yes. here. So I, I thought that was right. So, I mean, folks can learn some stuff about you just by reading your bio and those, sure. you know, there's, it's pretty revealing, but we like to ask our guests, what is one thing that's unique about you that our audience may not be able to find out about you otherwise using their, you know, <laughs> very well honed OSIN skills. Um, I think something that I care to share. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm, I'm very, very dedicated to martial arts, maybe not the trendiest ones right now, but um, one of the martial arts I st study is Filipino stick fighting and knife fighting. And I actually have traveled to the Philippines to study knife fighting there. Um, so it's, it's something that I'm very, very into. May not be Rambo, may not be the toughest person in the world, but I've actually traveled the world to study it. And um, I, I've been doing that for um, over a decade. It's a lot of fun. I'm hoping to teach that. I teach uh, kids martial arts right now. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I could actually benefit from that. I uh, you know, I was a. Uh, I would like to enroll in the under four class, please. <laughs> I was a non-voluntary right participant in knife fighting. Uh, in, Oops. Very long ago, and ended up no. fourteen stitches in my oh. leg. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah you got, probably could have used Leslie's course <laughs> in that instance. Yeah, well, the thing a, about yeah. knife fighting is you are always going to have stitches after world words. Oh the gosh! Of it, so what is yeah. what is like the most brutal? injury that you've come away with just in um, I training and... the eye. oh my gosh yeah that wasn't particularly fun thankfully i'm not blind um but yeah no kidding is... it was embarrassing to tell the er about oh yeah like i did this semi on purpose <laughs> they're like did you get beaten i was like i mean <laughs> like kind of seen the other guy <laughs> i'm at the er so <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. yeah uh well that is Right up there with Philip Wiley in Wrestling Bears. Nothing wrestling as good as Philip Wiley wrestling. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's oh, a, gosh. But I love him to death. He, you know, another just great, great guy. Um, so, yeah, Phil's actually got the standing record as the most podcast appearances on cyber speaks live thus far he's <laughs> good a, choice yeah yeah he's uh but has he ever been stabbed in the eye that's what i would like to know right right yeah i'm gonna have to <laughs> hopefully ask not it's not very pleasant Bill, if you're out there if you're leslie does not recommend for the for the audience there leslie does not recommend yeah. being stabbed in the eye <laughs> zero out of ten do not recommend hey, hey, do not attempt the, yeah, let's just put the standard legal disclaimer here. Do not sue me. Whatever you do with a knife in your hand or in some Do not else's, try this at home. That's up to you. This was accomplished by trained semi-professionals. <laughs> in a in a in a uh, controlled environment. Yeah. Controlled <laughs> environment. There we go. Closed track professional drivers. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, which reminds me of a lot of the talks that I use. I use a trigger slide and I use the one from ridiculousness, just <laughs> yeah. craft it to, to my language and purposes. But yeah, I love the standard ridiculousness disclaimer. Okay, so we've shot the long enough. Let's really get into the heat of what we're here for. Um, Le Leslie, your handle is hacks for pancakes 
you know, mine's InfoSec War. Elise is pretty standard, just first last. I used name. to have a cool one, and then I changed it to my name to like be professional, and it totally backfired because then DefCon happened, and I couldn't, I couldn't be anonymous again. <laughs> it just wasn't gonna work. So, are you saying you're not cool now? I'm not cool. I'm no, definitely not cool. No. Come on. But, but my name is unique enough that if you Google yeah, it, you can generally awesome. find me. So that's kind of just become my handle. <laughs> yeah. But hacks for pancakes. I mean, you know, I'll hire you if that's all I have to pay you in is pancakes. What's up with the handle? Yeah, it's really a self-deprecating joke. You know, like you can kind of go two ways in cybersecurity outside of your day job. You could either try to make a bunch of money on the side by like doing paid speaking gigs and and marketing yourself and stuff. Or you can go that I do B-sides and I volunteer for pizza route. (laughs) Like, so, so like take, take my handle as the same thing as like, if it was, uh, moves for pizza, <laughs> moves couches for pizza, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it's, <laughs> there it's, go. it's like, it, it's just a self-deprecating joke. Beer, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, that makes a, I think that's awesome though. Yeah. Because it, it really, allu- like it shows one of, I think the most attractive elements of your philosophy on what you do and sharing your knowledge and being open to giving back a lot of volunteer work i don't i think overall it's been a net benefit to everybody so i I can't complain too much (laughs) which brings up the transition topic and (laughs) i I think you just gave us the perfect bridgeway there um let's talk about pancakes con okay let's see what was the thought process, the origin? I mean, we're like right at the one year anniversary. You're pretty damn close, right? So we can kind of take a stab at it, what kind of motivated the origin. But I, I'd like to hear from you. What went into the original Pancakes Con and what is it? Yeah, so I run a conference, a virtual conference. Um And just a little background, if I had been born 20 years earlier, I would have probably ended up as a travel agent. I love organizing things. So I always kind of wanted to run a conference, but like you have to do a bunch of things to run an in-person conference. You have to like become a entity in terms of banking and financing and and uh, renting venues, all that jazz. Like it's a, it's a huge lift to start an in-person conference and it's very expensive for for all extents and purposes, unless you have sponsorship. And um, so I never really did it, but then the pandemic happened. And um, part of the person I am is I, I, I like people. I think people are really interesting in understanding what makes people tick and understanding the negatives and positives of human nature. Um, and, and I knew what was gonna happen. I, I don't have, precognition or anything, but I kind of knew what, how the pandemic was going to go from, from the very beginning of lockdown, that this was going to last for a long time. Um, it was going to be a shock and a trauma to a lot of people. Um, a lot of people were not going to be able to handle being locked in. Um, they were not going to be ha- able to handle not seeing their families. So my immediate reaction was distract them all, <laughs> make, make, get them to stay inside and distract them all. So that's, that's kind of where it came from. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. 
SquirrelCon. <laughs> pretty great. much, pretty much is SquirrelCon. Yeah, that's that's yeah. what it was. It was a so that's my my blatant psychological social engineering attempt there. <laughs> there that go. it actually was successful. I kept like thirty five hundred people inside yes. for for a day, and I uh, got them to think about something else. And I wasn't thinking I was going to have to do it again this year. It was kind of iffy, and it looks like I have to do it again this year. So we're doing it again this year. And I, yeah. I know, I understand you have a pretty unique um, call for papers or CFP process. Tell us a little bit more about how you structure talks for PancakesCon. Yeah, so it's more of my blatant psychology, social engineering, manipulation techniques. Um, I know that people are burnt out and zoomed out right now. Thank you if you're actually <laughs> tuned into this Zoom or listening to this podcast right now, because I understand everybody is super duper burnt out. So if I give you a 11 hour conference, that's just technical infosec talks, you are going to log out and go eat a pizza. Um, and I want to educate people. I want to help them learn more about infosec. I want to get more voices out there. So my solution is to break the talks in half. Every speaker can talk for half their talk about a technical, informative, educational infosec topic. And the other talk has to have nothing to do with cybersecurity. So it can be a hobby, um, cooking, um, a craft, et cetera, et cetera, a, a, a physical workout, something like that. They have to do something else for the other half of their talk to let people decompress and, and get ready to process more information. Yeah, I thought that was really neat. I, I had the opportunity to join last year and I thought that that was so neat that we got to watch people cook and we got to watch people show us their hobbies and get super excited and enthusiastic about what it is they do and their ability to share that with the audience was amazing to watch. And from my perspective, the thing that I love about it is we get to see just like the opening segment and asking you something unique about you that we can't find out otherwise. It helps us get to know each other at a much more intimate level and being able to see these speakers knowing their technical chops and what they're presenting from an infosec perspective, but also what makes them tick behind the scenes when they're not doing the shit that we have to do day in and day out, you know, 40 hours a week, if not more of our life, what makes you unique afterwards? You know, how can I forge a connection with you and your knife fighting skills and my needing to protect myself from a drunken Jim uh, Belushi? Literally, it was... It was a Halloween weekend. Jim Belushi gets drunk and ends up stabbing me. And I'm stone sober. I just got there 10 minutes earlier. Literally in a bar. It's terrible. I'm so sorry. Well, obviously, I, I need some knife fighting skills other than a 40 caliber. But, um, <laughs> you know, now I know who can do, you know, combat training hand to hand with knives. I, I don't have that other person or, or that person kind of person in my wheelhouse other than you now so look forward to a call um finding out things about all the other guests that have been on the show you know it's getting into that other side of them that exist outside of what we do for a profession there is a person behind that professional and that's why i love doing this podcast because i get to know you people at such a deeper level and you inspire me you inspire our audience members and they end up going off and doing some great things that we don't know the butterfly effect of that right and that's what makes 
this con that you're producing and, and organizing so special is we get all the technical chops of it, but we also get the delicate balance of getting to know these people at an intimate level and, and something that they're passionate about, that they have knowledge of that's got nothing to do with this stuff over here, but it's still so interesting and so unique and so captivating that we can't help but to wait for the next one to come on. And what are they going to be teaching us? Is it beer making, cigar rolling, you know, any other bad habits that we can form? I don't know, but let's bring it coffee brewing, you know, whatever. I could probably be an expert on how many different pills one person could possibly take in a day and still survive. You know, I'm living on about 16 different prescriptions right now. Oh my goodness. I'm just joking. Um, it's actually, only eight. No, <laughs> it's eight taken twice a day. Uh, oh gosh. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, sort of. No, but, he's not. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a whole, uh, Never mind. We're not going to get into that. So, um, Leslie, continuing on, let's say, the professional side of things. So, you work for Dragos, right? And am I saying it right, Dragos, not Dragos? Yeah, I mean, I say it how Rob Lee says it, so, and that's Dragos. Like, we, <laughs> that's, there's this is the right on, constant <laughs> debate. Like, people always say it's Dragos, but uh, Rob Lee says it's Dragos, so it's Dragos. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what I'm going with. And it's funny that you bring up Robert Lee, because you know that's where I was going with this. I found it funny that in the green edition, the security leaders edition of Tribe of Hackers, that both you and Mr. Robert Lee are featured. Wasn't it just a little bit off-putting that you and your CEO were both like, were you worried what your responses to the, you know, 14, 15 questions asked would be in comparison to his? Did you, did you wonder, oh, am I going to say the wrong thing? Or am I going to step on his toes? Is he going to step on mine? Was there any of that, you know, I don't know, thought going through your head? Anxiety. <laughs> yeah, it so would have been for me. Rob knew what he was getting into when he hired me. I've known him since we were both in the Air Force. Like he, oh, he wow, knew okay. that I have a, a public persona and that I interface with a lot of journalists and that I talk about a lot of stuff. I comment, I blog, I speak. And that was that was part of the expectation when he hired me. I was like employee 23 or something at Dragos. Yeah. And Hmm. Uh, you know, no, that doesn't bother me at a certain, I know that my responses to those types of questions with given, given some serious thought are, are going to be reasonable and I stand behind them, you know, it's, and we don't necessarily agree on everything. I agree on a lot of things with, with my CEO and with my manager. Um, I, I agree on lots of stuff with them, but I don't agree on everything. And it's not a healthy corporate culture to be a yes man. Um, or a yes woman or a yes person, you know, it's just, it's, it's not healthy. You need to be your own person and you contribute diversity and different perspectives to mm -hmm. your team that way. So my views on management might be slightly different than Rob's and that's okay. Uh, and we can both be correct, especially Absolutely. in different circumstances. Yeah. 
Yeah, that diversity and thought is what creates innovation and, and you know, better organizations to deliver wider services and capabilities that otherwise may not be achievable. Um, I remember one of my former uh, VPs, he was the VP of sales and was adamant that there should be a natural friction that exists between sales and delivery, right? That one should constantly be pushing the other in either direction, you know, to better themselves. Either sales pushing delivery to deliver more, faster, better, you know, and delivery should be pushing sales to get shit, you know, said right and signed right the first time and not have, you know, all these change requests and everything else, right? Same kind of mindset. But before we get into some of the responses, because there are some things that you said in the book that I think were just thought inspiring and, and moving and, and want to kind of get your expanded thoughts on those. But before we do, Elise, do, do we have everything as far as PancakeCon V2 covered? Are the CFPs still open? Do you need help with CFP reviews? Is there volunteerism opportunities? Where are we at? Because I know it's just, what, two or three weeks out? It's on the 21st, so oh like a, about, gosh, a, about a week coming up. So, so yes, the, the CFPs papers definitely closed. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I know that you've all announced speakers. And sure so have? everybody should absolutely go find the website and go get registered so that you can attend. Um, because this is a very, very fun conference to attend, um, not just to participate in. So pancakescon.com. Um, there's no registration required to watch it because it's going to be streamed mm -hmm. to YouTube. But if you want to interact with the conference in any way, attend our, our villages, play the capture the flag, um, ask questions of the speakers, you will need to be registered in our Slack. Okay. Good to know. And I just figured out why I was thinking the dates were further out. Um back in involved with the isolation con with the many hats club and mm -hmm. theirs is about six weeks out still so. yeah we tried to stagger a little bit so <laughs> you know when you get all these things going on in the middle of running a live podcast show you kind of get things mixed up in your head and just forgive me so um that's why we had to go back and make sure that i covered all the bases for PancakeCon. but glad that we've got that and everything is going off swimmingly for it so leslie um some of the things that i thought were pretty interesting were really your responses to the leadership edition right so the security leaders greenback edition the tribe Apache series this for those of you that aren't familiar, if you've never read one of the Tribe of Packers uh, books, there are actually four of these books that started with the Tribe of Packers, just call it Vanilla Edition. And the reason I say <laughs> the, the OG edition. <laughs> yeah, OG. That, yes. that one on Leslie's wall, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So as you can see on her wall, my screen, it's got kind of a vanilla colored background. 
That was the original edition. Now, what the concept was, this was actually based off of another book, um, and it was Tribe of something, I can't remember, but Marcus J. Carey picked that up and ran with it as kind of the concept behind Tribe of Packers, where he and Genjin um, worked together on soliciting from the infosec community in the first edition i think there were about 40 different contributors that were sent the same 14 questions and they were asked to respond to the exact same questions from, based off of their experiences their backgrounds um, their beliefs whatever the case may be but it was their boys responding to the exact same 14 questions. Now you may be asking, why do you want 40 different people answering the exact same 14 questions? Well, it's so you do have that diversity. You do have those different cultures and backgrounds and beliefs and experiences and project types and customer sizes and all those things. And when you take that diversity in backgrounds and you brain dump it into a, I don't know, 350-ish page book. Now you have basically a walking conference in your pocket, right? Mm -hmm. you can With all the different out. perspectives. Yeah, you can pull it out anytime. And want to talk about good bathroom reading? Let me tell oh, you goodness. something. <laughs> yeah. Because it takes about... Um, <laughs> You know, each each contributor has, let's just say on average, about two to three, sometimes four pages in the book. You know, so it's quick reading. You know, you can lie there, soak in the tub, do whatever, and get through a security leader or, you know, one of the original contributors. So that's the premise of the book series is that you're getting all these great perspectives. So we had the original vanilla edition then, not to be outdone, Marcus goes out and says, okay, um, let's do a red team edition. So for those of you that operate on the offensive security side of things, the pen testers out there, um, you know, there was a special edition, a red color jacket edition called the Tribe of Hackers Red Team. Then... We had the green cover edition, the Tribe of Hackers Security Leaders, which again, Leslie contributed to in this book. And then the last edition in the series, and I am saying the very last edition in the series, is the Tribe of Hackers Blue Team, which, um, Alith, are you in that one or no? Okay, so. No. No, I, I, I'm not really, I don't know if I, I fit into any of those categories, to be frank. <laughs> yeah, it's, the original definitely would have been a great one. Um, the blue team is just as it sounds for the protectors and defenders, right? And that's the one that I've contributed to as well as, you know, 30 something other security professionals that deal with the defensive side of security. But um, highly, highly recommend the Tribe of Hacker series. If you're not already uh, into it, 
definitely go out to Amazon and pick up your copy. You can start with the beginning or jump in there, whichever one suits you best. But that being said, and now, of course, I've just lost Leslie's place here. So, Alif, do you mind just covering for me for a second here? <laughs> Absolutely. We had a, a question come in from our, our guests. They are curious to know if there was anything that surprised you about the OVH fire, uh, fire that happened this week um, and the resulting aftermath. And what they are referring to is the OVH cloud mm -hmm. um, hosting company in France for our listeners that are not familiar. Um, they suffered a fire, which uh, impacted a lot of their customers, knocking out government agency portals, banks, shops, news websites, and essentially told all of their customers that they should use their disaster recovery plans, assuming, of course, they had them. <laughs> Do you have any um, thoughts, opinions, or... Um, or to be honest, nothing surprised me about it. I, I, okay. I don't really know what to say. I mean, it, you set a data, a major peering data center on fire. Yes, that, that will cause problems for um, a, a large number of the, the customers that use that because it's it's their peering location as well as as well as their their hosting location. So, yeah, it's unless people have a good DR plan and they have redundancy, then yeah, that's what it's going to do. Yeah, no kidding. Um, is there anything that you would recommend to those who may be responsible for coming up with disaster recovery plans or incident response plans? First steps, points in the right direction, any feedback based on your experience to help them avoid um, the worst case scenarios? Yeah, I mean, uh, redundancy and backups, it's all its all those basics. Um, and ransomware keeps becoming more and more pervasive and more and more impactful. And we still see organizations that aren't um, investing enough money and enough people in building those basics of good redundancy and good backup policies. Um, if you don't invest in those, you're going to have to keep paying ransom or going or rebuilding from scratch. That's just the nature of the business. This is not going to get better. It's it's only going to get worse. Um, so so yeah, absolutely. Um, Network redundancy as well as data re redundancy and functional redundancy are, are incredibly important things. Yeah, you brought up ransomware and that's that's something that I'm learning more about now, yeah. um, specifically, especially as it relates to social engineering. And um, I, I'm a consultant, for those who don't know, I'm a consultant on the professional services team at Critical Insight, also known as CI Security, which is based in Seattle. And this is something that we talk to our clients about on an ongoing basis is this idea of having a tested backups and b a disaster recovery plan because unfortunately so many of these organizations whether they're critical infrastructure or private companies they just don't feel like this is something that is worthy of their time or a priority because they feel like it won't happen to them a lot of people are very reliant on cyber insurance too, which is absolutely fortunate and unfortunate and not sustainable. Exactly. Yeah. And as with any insurance company, most insurance companies will do whatever they can to get out of yeah. paying claims. And if you don't have that good disaster recovery plan and logging and artifacts to prove that you're doing the things you're saying you're going to do, that's going to leave you open to getting those claims denied. That's why I so, say it's it's not sustainable because insurance companies are going to get smarter about closing loopholes. 
some, some things like, like negligence on parts of, of companies um, are going to get harder and harder to get around in terms of actually getting a payout to pay off ransoms, et cetera. You know, I really think we need to have a dedicated episode talking about the defenses for ransomware and speaking to this fallback mentality that a lot of organizations have on cybersecurity insurance riders because the reality is what's happening more and more frequently is like you just said being called out on not having the appropriate countermeasures in place to ensure their resiliency which voids the policy or these attacks that are being attributed to nation states being classified an act of war and not being covered under the insurance that's what insurers do and they're going to get better at it they they've been stumbling into the space they they haven't known how to write their verbiage right and Mm -hmm. and uh be very specific about what they cover and what they don't cover but they're going to get better and better at finding ways to not pay out money because that's how insurers stay in business so um you're going to reach a point just just like your home insurance or your auto insurance where they are going to be really good at figuring out and proving that you were at fault and and not paying out your claim or drastically increasing your rates wait until this occurs think about this for a second you know how progressive and all state and the other major auto insurance providers have the little onboard device to be able to monitor monitor mm-hmm. your driving habits what happens when you have an on-premises network monitoring device that is feeding back intel about your security posture back to the insurance provider of your cybersecurity rider i don't know if that'll happen i really can't call it it's a very different landscape in corporate environments versus personal households but um, they certainly are requiring things like audits. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. I, I think when it's put to the organizations, just like they put the uh, onboard diagnostic type device that, you know, if you do X, you'll get Y discount. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, but Yeah, really can't never- call it, but it's going to be much harder to get away with. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But uh, it's just one of those what ifs. And the other thing, to your point about them smartening up to the language and um, uh, trickier boilerplate. (laughs) Yeah, is they haven't had historical data to work from. And now we're a good five, six years into the real onslaught of ransomware attacks and insurance premiums or policies being written to cover cyber-related events as it pertains to ransomware. So now we have some data to support what they're going to be doing over the next two to three years. And I think you're going to see a dramatic increase in the premiums that they are charging for this Mm -hmm. because of the payouts that they've already suffered losses that may never recoup. And many of the top tier insurance, you know, providers, the AAA best rated are going to start dropping 
cybersecurity policies entirely. They don't yeah. want to be in the business. It's too risky and it's too expensive. So now what, folks? Now what are you going to do when you're hit with that ransomware? It's taken down your entire facility. Maybe you're an energy provider and they've hit some kind of control system inside of a remote facility in the Texas panhandle. What happens then? You know, you're not going to have the fallback of this insurance policy to pay your way out of the ransom. You better hope that you have some other mechanisms in place to get yourself out of that situation. And that is by far having validated backups right and it's deeply problematic to pay a ransom in those situations industrial is one place since we're seeing more ransomware that has potentially uh, industrial targeting components and the capability to modify and tamper with industrial devices but also mm -hmm. in spaces like law enforcement uh, medical devices where even if you pay the ransom the computer's still been compromised so um, pay, simply using a decryptor on it isn't adequate to validate that the system's still safe to use for critical applications. So this is a time, this is a time, everyone, this is a time to build in those redundancies and, and test your backups. Yeah. So what would happen? And make sure your backups are somewhere that is separate from all the other things. Mm -hmm. That's something that, that unfortunately has come to light with oh. uh, some cases that I've dealt with where the backups are somehow on the same system that's been uh, ransomware effectively. Absolutely. Yeah, so let's talk real quickly. I'll throw it out there, the three, two, one rule, right? At least three copies of your data in two different formats and one of those being offsite or in the cloud, right? Securely offsite or in the cloud. Preferably not a cloud that's gonna burn down though. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just so, somebody else's computer <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly there was a question Alif in the um, registrations sure. let me, let one me of them pull it up here. was about getting away from Windows XP can you bring up that question for me please because yes another really big thing that plays into exactly what we're talking about and ransomware and vulnerable systems. Um, so while she finds that real quickly, I've got it. Okay. But <laughs> real quickly, Leslie, I'm trying to, we're you trying to give me something to do and you fail. <laughs> no, I'm squirreling myself. Uh, going back to the previous statement though, you were talking about those systems being already compromised. So make sure you have your redundancies in place and stuff. Um, is there some special process that needs to be followed if one of those systems that's been compromised happens to sit in a SCADA network? Boy, you've, you've asked it that like the, the needs its own college quest, class question there. Of course, there. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yes, there are ways to validate industrial systems. Um, you know, you can do that by looking to see if new project files have been created, things like that, if those have been deployed to the lower level devices. Understand that uh, industrial systems are a layer cake typically, so the higher levels are more familiar, typically Windows and Linux-based systems, going, moving down to more more um, arcane uh, embedded type systems, analog devices, things like that at the lowest levels. So um, most attacks 
traverse multiple levels in industrial environments. So there's multiple places you can potentially detect tampering. But at some point, um, if you're really dealing with a situation where an adversary has been poking at things, you're going to need the expertise either in-house or consultant-wise to validate the configurations and the firmware on your low-level devices. Okay. All right. Thank you. Because I legitimately don't know a whole lot about SCADA networks. Uh, mm -hmm. I know they're a bitch to deal with and have so many layers of complexity and compliance regulations and you know everything like my oil and gas customers in Houston, you know, that was always like separate team management, physical networks, satellites, everything, you know, is its own beast. And I tried to avoid being in that as much as possible, but um, that was a different life also before I was really involved in InfoSec, so. Yeah. It's uh, gotten to the point where you can't ignore it anymore, though, if you're a cybersecurity person in an organization with industrial networks. Yeah. So Elise got that question in holding. Okay. I want to tee it up, though. So going back to my conversation with Tom um, Poppet with the uh, Foundation for Resilient Societies, yeah, one of the things that he talked about was how... Uh, vulnerable our power grid is to the threat of all these legacy devices and control systems that are in plants and in power distribution centers and all this stuff that are still running on 20 and 30 year old hardware and operating systems including windows xp and that to make the, the situation that much more precarious, these tend to be in the most remote locations on the face of the planet, whether if it's in the middle of a desert or in the middle of an ocean, you know, we're dealing with really remote facilities, typically on very slow WAN links or SAT links. Uh, so there's a lot of complexity and a lot of constraints that make updating these systems even remotely connected to them either difficult or impossible. One of the questions asked in the pre-reg was related to trying to get these ICS systems off of XP. Alith, can you ask the question for... Of course. Um, one of our attendees asked, how can we incentivize SCADA software developers to have a low-cost software upgrade option to get the power grid off of XP? Yeah, so that's another complicated question um, about industrial systems that requires some background knowledge about how they're purchased and how they're developed. Um, some, some highlights that I can give you real quick. Um, the priority in a process environment is to keep the process running safely. Number one, above everything else, it's not cybersecurity, it's not IT performance, it is the process running safely and effectively and without problems. That, that is the concern there. Um, and if your problem with how the network is configured or how the systems are configured, what operating systems are running has no impact on that, it is irrelevant. Um, you've got to think about these systems holistically as well. Um, re remember layer cake, there's, there's those 
XP's new <laughs> 3.1 systems, you know, up, up, up there at the top <laughs> levels. Um, and yes, that's bad, but they're doing functions like historian services and engineering workstations and, and uh, HMIs. And yeah, losing visibility, losing control of your HMI is bad and it can cause a need to shut down for safety concerns. But the lower level devices are things like PLCs, RTUs, DCS, et cetera. And um, those aren't necessarily impacted by stuff like ransomware, Windows malware, stuff like that. Um, so if the bad thing is not impacting the safety and operation of the process, then it is, it, it's not important right now. It can wait for an upgrade or a maintenance window. Um, those risk management decisions have to be made because it costs a lot of money to shut down a mm -hmm. manufacturing facility or a power plant. Um, they are providing a critical service and their uptime is a really important thing there. The safe uptime is a really important thing there. Um, so yes, incentivizing manufacturers to uh, upgrade systems at low cost is is important and a lot of them do get that most of the the i go to classes for vendors industrial vendors and most of the systems that are sitting getting shipped out today are windows 10 they're pretty mm -hmm. reasonably secure high, higher level devices um but they have long life cycles so right. um talking about getting out there to upgrade a system it's not that simple it's not plopping in a new system it has to integrate to the plcs it has to integrate to the lower level devices it has to work with the entire software suite so um i mean i, I can see some potential like legislative incentives where they get breaks and and benefits mm -hmm. and and bonuses for for providing low cost upgrade solutions to to sites but that's a costly process um mm -hmm. it's expensive um because you're you're making sure that the whole system still functions with that uptime and safely with a new operating system and there's a lot of a lot of moving parts there so um the best thing i can say there is it, yeah incentivize them incentivize them to do it and i think that's an excellent years. point we're going to be having the same conversation about Windows 10, right? Oh, yeah. Well, and and like the like Leslie was saying, the life cycle of these devices is, you know, 10, 20, 15, 35 years. And if you're talking specifically about things like water systems, for example, there are budgets and, you know, very political aspects to those organizations that have to be taken into consideration. They're not just going to say, sure, IT person, mm -hmm. you're right. We should go ahead and upgrade all these devices and all these operating systems and redo the whole system that's working just fine. <laughs> safe process uptime. If you're not putting things in terms of safe process, process uptime with taking into account things like safety controls and mitigations, your argument is going to fall on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. Um, I have another kind of fun question. Um, do you uh, ever see people in the context of your work who have self-inflicted malware? <laughs> this is a question from one of our attendees to cover something up. So any purposeful destruction of systems that you've done incident response and digital oh, man, forensic I've seen, I've seen everything. I've seen everything. I would love just, I'm just um, going to shut up sure. and let you tell us all the things. <laughs> I mean, I've seen security people infect themselves by moving a malware sample and clicking on it. Everybody gets distracted. It's not that <laughs> abnormal that somebody infects their own their own box, you know, trying to pull things over into a VM or something. Um, 
destroy their own box. I, I haven't seen somebody take a sledgehammer to one, but I've seen people <laughs> reimage their own computers because they didn't want to admit that they clicked on a phishing email or they got infected. People are still embarrassed about that stuff. And for God's mm -hmm. sake, security people do it. It's ridiculous. It's like yelling at people for clicking on a phishing email. Like everybody's going to do it eventually. Um, we try to put as many technical controls in the way and defense in depth in the way to keep it from causing a problem. Okay, we, I see another one here, and it's along the fun lines. Uh, where <laughs> does Shodan or similar platforms fit into your toolkit? Yeah, so um, this is another thing of understanding that layer cake of industrial systems and that they're holistic processes. So I see a lot of cybersecurity people who are very competent, very good at their jobs, Post, I found this power plant on Shodan and oh my God, the world is ending. It's all going to catch on fire um, or this, this water treatment plant or whatever. And sometimes that's, that is really bad. Sometimes it's something that's connected to a modem. It's super exposed and it's actually an HMI that can impact process. But understand that industrial processes are complex, redundant, and are full of safety controls. So even if you you find a lot of HMIs or human machine interface screens are not interactive at all. They're just displays. And even if they are interactive, there's a bunch of stuff going on in that process that's gonna keep it from exploding. Like there's pressure relief spells, <laughs> there's safety systems, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. There's human operators keeping bad things from happening, conditions that shouldn't happen. So just poking buttons ad hoc on things because they're on showdown is normally 90 something percent of the time not going to have a massive consequence on the process. Um, yes, there are exceptions to that, but um, you've got to understand, yes, exposure is bad. And we use Shodan to see, you know, if devices are exposed in, in particular customers' environments, certainly. But that's not necessarily the end of the world. We've got to think about things in terms of the process and consequences, not in terms of what's infected, what's exposed. Yeah, Excellent. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, mm -hmm. So we're right at the top of the hour. We started a few minutes late. So let's go ahead, Alith, if you don't mind, let's go through the questions that we have from the registrations and get those flushed out. Sure. And I have, I think, just uh, one or two more. Um, there's some that aren't really applicable, so I'm going to skip them. Um, for those looking to get into DFIR and or OSINT, what are some unexpected or unanticipated aspects of the job? Um, you have to have a certain personality type to really like differ. So first of all, digital forensics is not like it is on TV or in the movies. No glowing <laughs> fancy blue lights. No, just instantly. No techno music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no techno. Well, I mean, if you play it yourself, I guess, but um, it's a time consuming, painstaking process. It involves sometimes looking at spreadsheets for days at a time. So if you don't enjoy sitting there and just staring at lines of spreadsheets for days at a time to, <laughs> to follow leads and then the leads don't go anywhere and then you follow another lead and you collect more evidence and you process it and you follow another lead. If you don't like that met uh, methodological approach to like just investigating stuff. You're not gonna like digital forensics. An incident response, an incident response, you have to enjoy things being on fire. 
So you yeah. have to enjoy being screened Panic. at. You have to enjoy dealing <laughs> with people on their worst day ever and doing triage, sometimes unpleasant triage, um, to figure out what to do first and, and what decisions to make about something that's catastrophically happening to an organization right now. Um, so you, you have to be able to, will, you have to be willing to do painstaking analytical work. And you also have to be willing to make very tough decisions under fire based on what you know right then about what's happening. That's a great segue into the next question, which is what is the first thing that you look for during an investigation? Um, a pivot I know that point. that's kind of yeah, every investigation, every investigation is very is different. So different. Um, yeah. I'd say a pivot point. Um, usually when you, you, you start an investigation, somebody thinks something's wrong. Maybe they think maybe there's been a compromise. The first thing you want to do is find a piece of evidence that you can pivot off of to corroborate it and find surrounding events and what else has happened in the, the timeline of events. So that's very broad answer to a very broad question. I agree. Yeah, no, I, I think that, like you said, each incident is so unique that it's tough to pinpoint one thing. Yeah. So I'd like to pivot off of that if you don't mind. <laughs> um, so... Are there particular threat intelligence feeds that you would recommend to the audience that are specifically interested in ICS threats? Um, join your ISAC. Um, if people define threat intelligence wrong. Uh, there's, if you're talking about IOCs, IOCs are not gonna be much use to you in that space. Um, you need real threat intelligence. You need to understand mm -hmm. what organizations are attacking, what verticals, things like that, what adversaries are out there, who's being targeted and how. You need to know, not necessarily attribution, but you need to understand TTPs, things like that. IOCs are not going to get you very far. So join your ISAC, join your threat intelligence working groups um, for, your, for your vertical, et cetera. Yeah, which I would... Uh, be a big proponent of the InfraGuard. Um, yeah, sure. InfraGuard is great. Yeah. yeah. I've been a member for, I think, four years now. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's SIGs and, you know, different uh, groups around each of the 16 uh, critical infrastructures that the right. InfraGuard covers. So, you know, if you're not already a member and you are involved in the cybersecurity of these systems, I would highly encourage it. Um, sure. There's other uh, very industry specific, um, you know, groups that you can participate in and that they have their own threat intelligence sharing mechanisms as well. So investigate those um, too. Alith, anything else from the Q&A? Uh, no, I think we worked most everything in and I, I want to be conscious of Leslie's time because we have gone over a little bit and I know she's probably got a busy day still. Yeah. So absolutely. thank you so much, Leslie, for joining us. Um, this was a really fun conversation and I hope me. that everyone has a blast at PancakesCon and that we get to see each other IRL very soon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks again. Absolutely. Right. And for those of you that are in the audience, feel free to stick around. I am going to open things up here in just a minute and let our real talk 
free form, you'll be able to unmute yourself and participate in the discussion. I don't know if Leslie's going to have time to stick around. If she can, that would be awesome. If not, we totally understand. I will be here. Alith, are you going to be able to hang around for a little bit? Yep. I do have a, um, a few minutes to stick around after. Okay. I've got sure. a few. I've got a few. And I know one of the questions, and I know who's asked it, so I'm, I'm going to try to bring it back up. I'm not sure if I can still see it here. Um, many believe that ICS is currently the biggest cyber threat. Do you agree or, or not? Um, and I'm going to ask this in, in two parts. So let me ask that part of it first so do you think that ics is trending at the as... biggest risk for yeah. cyber threats yeah leslie your take uh biggest risk i, I think um, i think the idea has... here is i think the idea here is that uh ics may be at the highest risk for cyber threats Attack. Yeah, mm, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, it, that's that's really hard to say because you've got to remember threat times, threat and vulnerability being a component of that. Um, vulnerability, yeah, they do have a GUI soft center, um, and that's <laughs> problematic. Um, but again, there's a lot of safety controls in place, and they're complex. To there's a, there's a lot of security by obscurity going on there too, because it's hard to figure out how to do something specific to a process. Um, it, it, they, they definitely have great consequence if they're tampered with. That's that's the concern there. The the consequence you have in 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 uh, ICS you normally model risk including consequence as a factor, and mm -hmm. the consequences can be very very severe in industrial networks and in critical infrastructure of of something being effectively compromised. Yeah, we're talking about lives lost as opposed to just money and, and cost of replacing. Yeah, or societal things. breakdown, major contamination mm -hmm. to the environment, things like that. And that's what I was thinking as you were talking, where ICS would stand up against, let's say, med tech. And, you know, I'm a type 1 diabetic with an insulin pump, Bluetooth enabled and connected to my iPhone. Would that be, you know more susceptible to exploits than say an ICS system. Um, is it more of a risk if something like the tandem network were to be compromised? Tandem's one of the major pump manufacturers out there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where does that fit in versus ICS? I don't know. It, it's one of those things, it's an opinion-based uh, it's hard to quantify yeah. it's very hard to quantify absolutely it is but i will say this we need better not better we need more concentrating around ics security we need more education and awareness and the ability to do real kind of tabletop exercises in these environments and i think obviously i made an announcement this week about um my affiliation with echo ctf 
Red and that platform for being able to have real dioramas and these types of smart city control systems that can be used as flags in a CTF event in a competition, both protecting and defending uh, as well as attacking and being able to actually go after these control systems, which provides a really unique CTF competition or learning experience. Where do you see those types of trainings and capabilities um, being able to help with this specialized area around InfoSec? Boy, boy, it's a tough one. At least, do you have any thoughts? Honestly, I feel like, the, I think we keep running into this scenario where the the question could go so many different routes <laughs> because there's so many different um, like control factors. We're talking about a very broad thing when the answer requires us to be pretty specific about yeah. a specific case. Um, and I think that there's, there's a lot of unknowns here. And I know that we were talking about this earlier. We could all have a different answer to the same question and none of them would be wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not even sure where to start there. Right. I think that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> and I, I think that, um, you know, there's, there's still so much that we are learning about how to properly defend against these types of threats and how to educate our clients about how to be prepared for these types of incidents. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty tough for anyone, I think, to come up with a standard answer to a lot of, of these types of questions, just because yeah. everything's different, A, and B, a lot of what I have from experience, I can't share. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which, I get it. And that's part of the problematic nature of InfoSec, you know, <laughs> right. how much we want to hold, you know, close to our chest, but at the same time, we want to be able to share with others and yeah. help them grow. And Anyhow, so, yeah, I think that's a good point for us to conclude with the recorded portion of the show for everyone who has stuck around thus far. Thank you so much. Feel free to continue to hang out for our real talk. But for now, we're going to thank Leslie for her time. Ali, thank you. thank you so much for this first episode as my co-host. You've been fabulous. I love it. I think it's working out great so far. If you agree, <laughs> let us know in the chat. Be sure to share this episode and other episodes with your friends, family, coworkers, what have you. Show up next time. We love having you. Love having your participation. Leslie, how can folks get in touch with you or follow you and your career and what you're doing around InfoSec? Yeah, so I have a blog. It's uh, tisiphony.net. It's linked in my, in my Twitter. Um, and uh, I have an email listed on that blog if you want to email me. There's also an anonymous form. If you want to ask me questions anonymously, then I'll respond to them on Twitter or on my blog or on a oh, vlog. Nice. Um, yeah, because some people don't want to like put their their names <laughs> on things. Um, yeah, I speak all over. Um, I speak at universities. If you're interested in having me come talk to your class, get in touch with me. Um, I yeah, I'm open to corporate speaking stuff. Um, if that's something that you find useful, 
Um, just get in touch with me via any of the contact information on my blog or through Twitter, and uh, we'll go from there. Excellent. Thank you. Alif? Yes. <laughs> um, well, I, I want to thank you again, Leslie, for your time today. It was fantastic to have you on. So thank you for, for being up for this. Um, and uh, thank you again, Duncan, for inviting me on as your co-host. It's a lot of fun um, to have the opportunity to do this. And I look forward to many more. <laughs> Absolutely. And how can folks get in touch with you? Um, generally just Googling Aleith will get you there. Um, but at Aleith Dennis on Twitter is probably the best way to find me. <laughs> I just made a token joke. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, my, my OPSEC strategy is just to pollute the internet with things that have my name on them <laughs> just because I'm so, uh, have such a unique name, but, uh, Twitter is a great place or LinkedIn, just LinkedIn forward slash IN forward slash Aleith. That's how unique the name is. And you will find me there. Feel free to connect, take advantage of my network. There you go. And again, stick around for the real talk. I am Duncan Macklin, InfoSec War on Twitter. And that's where you can easily find me and connect to other social platforms from there. Be sure to follow Cyber Speaks Live as well on Twitter and be able to get alerted to our upcoming guests and topics, as well as ping us and let us know what you think about the show, our guest. Uh, suggest future guests and topics for us to consider and get into our calendar and lineup. Feel free. Uh, we love to keep the dialogue going and, and communicate with our audience, which last count was in 101 countries around the world. So thank you wherever, whenever you are joining us. I know today we have folks all the way from Australia to South Africa, Canada, all over the United States, Europe, etc. So thank you for taking time out of your day to join us. You are a valued part of this community and this show. So thank you very much. Duncan Macklin signing out.